Nehemiah chapter 4. When Sambalat heard that we were rebuilding the wall, he became angry and was greatly incensed. He ridiculed the Jews, and in the presence of his associates and the arm of Samaria, he said, What are the, those feeble Jews doing? Will they restore their wall? Will they offer sacrifices? Will they finish in a day? Can they bring the stones back to life from those heaps of rubble, burned as they are? Tobiah the Ammonite, who was at his side, said, what they are building, even a fox climbing up on it, would break down their wall of stones. Hear us, O God, for we are despised. Turn their insults back on their own heads. Give them over as plunder in a land of captivity. Do not cover up their guilt or blot out their sins from your sight, for they have thrown insults in the face of the builders. So we rebuilt the wall till all of it reached half its height, for the people worked with all their heart. But when Sambalat, Tobiah, the Arabs, the Ammonites, and the people of Ashdod heard that the repairs to Jerusalem's wall had gone ahead and that the gaps were being closed, they were very angry. They all plotted to come, to come and fight against Jerusalem and stir up trouble against it. But we prayed to our God and posted a guard day and night to meet this threat. Meanwhile, the people in Judah said, The strength of the laborers is giving out, and there is so much rubble that we cannot re rebuild the wall. Also, our enemy said, before they know it or see us, we will be right there among them and will kill them and put an end to the work. Then the Jews who lived near them came and told us ten times over, wherever you turn, they will attack us. Therefore, I stationed some of the people behind the lowest points of the wall at the exposed places, posting them by families with their swords, spears and bows. After I looked things over, I stood up and said to the nobles, the officials and the rest of the people, don't be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome and fight for your families, your sons and your daughters, your wives and your homes. When our enemies heard that we were aware of their plot and that God had frustrated it, we all returned to the wall, each to our work. From that day on, half of my men did the work, while the other half were equipped with spears, shields, bows and armour. The officers posted themselves behind all the people of Judah who were building the wall. Those who carried materials did their work with one hand and held a weapon in the other, and each of the builders wore his sword at his side as he worked. But the man who sounded the trumpet stayed with me. Then I said to the nobles, the officials, and the rest of the people, the work is extensive and spread out, and we are widely separated from each other along the wall. Wherever you hear the sound of the trumpet, join us there. Our God will fight for us. So we continued the work with half the men holding spears, from the first light of dawn till the stars came out. At that time I also said to the people, let every man and his helper stay inside Jerusalem at night so that they can serve us as guards by night and as workers by day. Neither I nor, nor my brothers nor my men nor the guards with me took off our clothes. Each had his weapon even when he went for water. Well, if you've got your Bibles, do please keep them open. We're going to be referring to this passage throughout. And this is um, the fourth week in the book of Nehemiah. So we're studying Nehemiah as a church. And um, part of the book of Nehemiah contains this story of how the walls of the ancient city of Jerusalem were rebuilt. Now, Jerusalem is the capital city of Judah. It is um, the center of worship for God's people, the Israelites. But its walls have been in ruins. And so the people who are there, are vulnerable, 
and are in disgrace. So there's a need for the, for the walls to be built, for there to be protection and security and morale for the people as they consolidate themselves and, and, and come together again, united. Now, Nehemiah has been the governor of Jerusalem. He's come from um, Persia um, all the way to, to Jerusalem, and he's an Israelite himself. And he's taken responsibility for trying to get this project together to build these walls. And he's been on quite a journey already. There's been quite a bit of drama, ups and downs. At first, it wasn't clear whether he'd get permission to be able to um, build the wall from the, from the Persian king. And then also, he's had quite a job just trying to unite all the people to be of, of one mind, to be able to mo- be mobilized together to build this wall. And yet, nevertheless, he has been able to do so. And so, remarkably, the people have come together. And we saw last week how all sorts of people in Jerusalem and outside of Jerusalem, Israelites had united and have picked up their tools and worked at the wall all together. It's a remarkable effort. Remarkable effort. However, the drama isn't over. And starting to build the wall very much is kind of the beginning rather than the end of uh, the ups and downs. Now, we're calling this uh, sermon series Rebuild. We, like Nehemiah, are thinking about how we can work for God's kingdom in a post-pandemic world with fresh opportunities that we have. We're able to meet together now in a fresh way. Um, and so we're thinking, you know, how, how can we work for God's kingdom? How do we restart our ministries here at the church? How do we love each other well? How do we um, serve our city well? And not just about the church, in our live, lives personally, in our families, in our workplaces. What, what does it mean there to work for Jesus' priorities, work in his kingdom? Well, this week we're going to look at what happens when difficulties arise. Because working in God's kingdom is not easy. It's not easy. And I think most of us know that the last year and a half has been fairly bruising for us personally in all sorts of ways, but also for us as a church. It's been difficult. I know that for some of us, the last year and a half has been perhaps our lowest ebb in terms of how we've been doing spiritually. We've missed out on so much. So we know that it can be hard and we face difficulties in God's kingdom and in, and in the church. And we've got this fresh opportunity now, but difficulties may arise again. And what what are we going to do? What should our expectations be? How should we respond if things get hard? And what is it that's going to keep us going? Well, Nehemiah chapter 4 shows us. And the first thing I want to say to us um, that we see from this passage is that we will face opposition. We will face opposition. And so if Nehemiah had thought that uniting the people together to build was going to be the end of his problems, he was wrong, wasn't he? Look down at me, verse 1. When Sanballat heard that we were rebuilding the wall, he became angry and was greatly incensed. He ridiculed the Jews. And in the presence of his associates in the army of Samaria, he said, what are these feeble Jews doing? Will they restore their wall? Will they offer sacrifices? Will they finish in a day? Can they bring the stones back to life from those heaps of rubble, burned as they are? What a start, eh? So we're introduced to Sanballat and Tobiah, or we were introduced to them in a previous chapter. And these are uh, rulers in some of the neighboring 
kind of provinces around where Jerusalem is. And they had a vested interest in Jerusalem not being built. So a rebuilt Jerusalem would threaten Sanballat's political power in the region. So he doesn't like the fact that these walls um, are being restored. So they decide to respond with the tactic of psychological warfare, taunting, mind games. That's how it starts. So he taunts the Israelites. He mocks them. He tells them that they're not going to finish. He implies that their, bu- their building project is futile. Did you see that um, note that Tobiah says? You know, even a fox climbing up on this wall is going like, to ruin it. And clearly, they were building from rubble. They weren't experts or professionals. Some of the blocks would have been um, burnt and scorched. There would have been issues. It wouldn't have been a a perfect, super clean project. So they're they're being taunted by Sanballat and and Tobiah. And these just aren't playground taunts. There is a a menace that's lurking behind them. Look at verse 2. It says that Sanballat said these things in the presence of the army of Samaria. So there's an army gathering. Now, at first glance, these taunts don't seem to achieve much. In fact, the people keep building, and, and they are quite productive. Verse 6, we rebuilt the wall till all of it reached half its height, for the people worked with all their heart. They've got halfway there. But then the opposition starts to escalate further. Look at verse 7. But when Sanballat, Tobiah, the Arabs, the Ammonites, and the people of Ashdod heard that the repairs to Jerusalem's wars had gone ahead and that the gaps were being closed, they were very angry. They all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and stir up trouble against it. So the list of all those people and names, what that basically amounts to is all of Judah's neighbors around them. Everyone on every side has come together in an effort to conspire against Jerusalem. So the Israelites are surrounded. And the Israelites become aware of the danger. Look at verse 11. Also, our enemies said, before they know it or see us, we will be right there among them and we'll kill them and put an end to the work. So the threat becomes explicit. that There could be death here. There could be war and battle. The threat looms. And Perhaps unsurprisingly, it takes its toll on God's people. They become discouraged and fearful. Verse 10, meanwhile, the people in Judah said, the strength of the laborers is giving out, and there is so much rubble that we cannot build the wall. Now, commentators suspect that this discouragement has actually been started or catalyzed from these taunts. They've just got these constant threats and um, Voices around them, demeaning them, threatening, threatening violence, and they're, they're losing their courage. Even though they've got so far, they're fearful. And that's not a surprise, is it? I mean, we know, don't we, that sustained verbal insults or intimidation or verbal abuse has massive consequences and is harmful. We know that. And it's not even just those in the city who feel threatened. Verse 12, then the Jews who live near them came and told us ten times over, wherever you turn, they will attack us. So all of God's people, wherever they live in this area, feel threatened. So it's a tense moment. It's a tense moment for the people. 
And it goes to show that opposition really is a reality for God's people. It's an opposition, uh, it's a reality. And even as we seek to do good things, even as we seek to contribute towards God's kingdom, we can't expect it to be an easy ride. Opposition is, is there. And it takes many forms. So in some parts of the world today, the opposition to Christians will look actually quite similar to what we see in this passage. If you're in the Democratic Republic of Congo, for example, you may be a Christian from a small village that has to deal with the threats of militia coming in and kidnapping people, torturing them, killing them for being Christians. That's, that's real life. That's today. But opposition is not always as overt and obvious as that. The Bible teaches that Christians... Um, face threats from three sources, the world, the flesh, and the devil, traditionally called. So the world is a society outside of ourselves. The flesh, our, our own sinful nature, our, our own problems that we bring to community life. But also the reality of the devil, who the Bible says is a real spiritual being who opposes God's people. Now, he doesn't have ultimate control over all things, only, only God does. But he does use an array of tactics to oppose God's people. That could involve the violence of actual opponents in the world. It could involve suffering. He creates divisions in the church, the Bible tells us. And these tactics are still in play today. And so therefore, we need to be aware of that as God's people as a church. We need to realize that as we seek to rebuild, we can't expect plain sailing. There are going to be times when we feel deflated and discouraged. And perhaps some of you know what that's like already. You know, for some of us, we may have experienced uh, a time of progress in our Christian lives. We may be aware of areas where we're trying to become more like Jesus we're trying to fight the, the battles of our, of our sinful nature. We're trying to deal with habits and addictions that plague us. And you may have sensed some progress in that, but then relapsed. And it can feel like one step forward, two steps back sometimes in that long, hard battle to become mature and, and refine our characters. And it saps you of strength when that happens. And I wonder about what, what discouragement might look like for us as a church together. You know, it's a blessing that we're able to meet here in this school. It's wonderful. But what if there was a COVID outbreak next week? What if the school decided to shut its doors again to outside hirers and we weren't able to meet here anymore? What, what would we do? How would we feel about that? And even if that doesn't happen, you know, inevitably in life, God's people are going to face challenges and discouragements and struggles. Our struggles as a church are not behind us. Realistically, they're not. There'll be more. And some of us will have spent a lot of time and energy pouring ourselves out for God's kingdom in one way or another, serving in church or with a Christian ministry or the Christian union. Um, and some things negative might have happened, and you sort of think, why, why do I bother why do I bother? But these issues are real. We face opposition. We face opposition. And you know what? Sometimes it's actually quite freeing to know that. If we expected that every time we did something God wanted us to do, it would go well, we'd just be devastated, wouldn't we, when things are hard? 
But there's actually something freeing in knowing that we can expect difficulty as God's people. It comes with a territory. So we will face opposition. So what should we do then when we do face opposition? What should our response be? Well, secondly, we pray and act. We pray and act. And Nehemiah leads the way for us here. We, we see his response, and it's a remarkable balance of dependence on God on one hand and activity on the other. And verse 9, I think, encapsulates this. Look down in verse 9. But we prayed to our God and posted a guard day and night to meet this threat. So it's both prayer, dependence on God, and action. Verse 14, remember the Lord, who is great and awesome, and fight. So it's looking to the Lord and and doing something. So we need both. Let's think about prayer first. Now we see that Nehemiah's first and primary response is prayer. So when it talks in the the passage about the taunts that Sanballat and Tobiah um, used to, to attack the people... Out of nowhere, um, Nehemiah says, Hear us, our God, for we are despised. That's verse 4. So his gut reaction when, when facing this opposition is, is to pray. And then when you get the threat later in verse 9, we prayed to our God. So Nehemiah knows, and we must know, that our, our first response to any difficulty, to any opposition, is to bring it before God in prayer. Sounds so obvious, doesn't it? And that's what we should do. We do face problems with that, though. Now, I wonder in this room how many of you are and have realized that you are fixers. You know, fixer-type people. Here's how you know if you're a fixer. Imagine someone comes to you. uh, They are telling you and open up about struggles in their life. Perhaps they're having a hard time at work. They've got a boss who's always on their case, being unfair to them. What is your first response when someone tells you that? Do you straight away try to fix the problem? Try and solve it for them? Say, let me give you some advice. Are you the sort of person who says, well, have you tried, have you tried uh, talking to them about it? You know, if you're the sort of person who's thinking as soon as you hear someone struggle, hmm, what, what can I do to, to help solve this problem? Then you are a fixer. I'm a bit of a fixer as well. I should probably say on behalf of fixers to fellow fixers, we annoy people. We annoy people, okay? Sometimes people ask, tell us their struggles not so we can fix them, but so we can just hear them and so that they can felt be, be understood, okay? We're not there to be Superman or Superwoman. And see, the problem with fixers is they move straight to problem solving without, whilst missing something important. And I suggest that a lot of us are spiritual fixers, okay? A problem or struggle arises, and we go straight to trying to deal with it in some way. We, we act, and we don't always pray. Or we just get worried, and we don't pray. But here's the thing. Spiritual fixers deny reality. They deny reality. They're delusional. We're delusional. Why? Because we are helpless. Spiritual fixers forget that we are at base, helpless, and dependent on God for all things. Utterly dependent. We can't fix everything by ourselves, and we are not made to fix things by ourselves. 
Instead, our loving Heavenly Father encourages us to come and talk to Him about what we, what we face, to lean on Him, to ask for His help. And understanding this will just change our prayer lives. There's a great book on prayer written by a guy called Paul Miller. It's called A Praying Life. And he's talking about um, the New Testament command to be constantly praying, like pray continuously. And he, and he says this, you don't need self-discipline to pray continuously. You, you just need to be poor in spirit. That is, you just need to be helpless. Because once you realize you're helpless, you're going to be praying a lot more. And one reason we don't pray is because we are fixers, but God invites us to pray. So our first response in any opposition or struggle is to pray. So accept you can't solve the problems yourself. You need help. So pray. Pray like Nehemiah. Pour it out. Be real with God. And Nehemiah is certainly real, isn't he? And now just as a bit of a sidebar, if you look at verses 4 and 5, you may feel a little uncomfortable with the content of Nehemiah's prayer. Give them over as plunder in a land of captivity. Do not cover up their guilt or blot out their sins. This feels a little bit much, doesn't it? A little bit strong. Doesn't feel particularly Christian. But prayers like this are throughout the Bible. They're they're known as imprecatory prayers. You see a lot of them in the Psalms. And in fact, you see them in the New Testament as well. And the truth is that um, these these are in the Bible for a reason, and we can can learn from them. Now, I won't go into them in much detail now. We don't really have time. But if you're interested, you can come and talk to me about them. Or if you get the weekly news that goes out on a Monday, I'm going to link to an article that might help you think about them a little bit more. But the main point here is that we should pray. We should pray and be honest. But then we should also act. So if we are helpless and we acknowledge that we are helpless, that's not an, um, an excuse for inactivity or passivity. This chapter is full of Nehemiah's actions. So verse 9, he organizes guards for protection. Verse 13, he, he organizes all the people to be at special places in the walls to prepare for an attack. Verse 19, he sets up this kind of trumpet scheme where um, if any part of the wall is attacked, they can blow the trumpet so everyone can rally round to help. And Nehemiah's actions gain results. Verse 15, the plan is frustrated. So Nehemiah was dependent on God in prayer, but he wasn't passive, he acted. And God used those actions um, to serve, to, to bless the people. Now, some of us may be quick to pray. We may be slower to act. Maybe we do a bit of an ostrich impression. We put our head in the sand. We, we kind of pretend that issues aren't there. We don't want to deal with them. Or for whatever reason, we shrink back. But, we need, but godliness involves action as well as prayer. So as we face opposition and struggles, will we pray, but will we also take action. If you see challenges in this church from outside or from within, pray, um, but also try and be part of the solution. If you sense problems in the community life here, what what can you do to to be part of that um, problem solving? Now, for some of us, the problem isn't that we're not active. Part of it is that we're just weary from being really active. We've done a lot of work, and we're just tired 
um, we're struggling. Well, for us, maybe activity there just means perseverance. It means keeping going. William Carey was the pioneer missionary of India, and he once wrote that his gift was that he could persevere. He said, I can plod in any given direction. Praying and plodding. Maybe that's what we need to learn this morning if we're struggling. We need to keep going. We need to keep going. So, we need to pray and act. Well, I mean, it's all well and good, isn't it, saying we should pray and act. But that's pretty hard when we are discouraged. What sort of assurances do we have? Where are we going to get the strength to do that from? You know, if you are discouraged and feeling low, even the idea of praying can feel an impossible task. So what hope is there? Finally, the Lord is with us. The Lord is with us. So who is God in this passage? Who is he? We've got a favorite phrase of Nehemiah's in verse 14. Look down with me. What does he say? Remember the Lord who is great and awesome. He said that before in uh, chapter 1 that God is great and awesome. So what does that mean, though? Does that mean that he's too big and powerful to care about us? Not at all. Key phrase, verse 20, our God will fight for us. Our God will fight for us. Now, in verse 14, he's calling the people to be ready to fight. In verse 20, he says that it's God who's fighting for them. So get that, behind all the fears of the Israelites, behind all the taunts, behind all the opposition, behind all the discouragement, behind even all the planning and action that Nehemiah takes, there is a God who is fighting for his people. And if that's true, the end result is inevitable, isn't it? It doesn't matter how much Sambalat taunts the Israelites, it doesn't matter how big an army he has. If the great and awesome God is fighting... Jerusalem, then the outcome is set. And it is. By the end of the chapter, Jerusalem has not been attacked or invaded. The wall will keep being built, and indeed it gets finished. And so God uses his greatness and awesomeness to fight for his people. And one more thing to notice. I think we see something of, something of God, something of the Lord Jesus in particular, in Nehemiah. Look down with me at verse 22. At that time, I also said to the people, let every man and his helper stay inside Jerusalem at night so that they can serve us as guards by night and as workers by day. Neither I nor my brothers nor my men nor the guards with me took off our clothes. Each had his weapon even when we went for water. So Nehemiah decides that it will be safer if the builders stay in the city overnight, armed and ready in case they get ambushed. So they don't change into pajamas and slippers, ready to uh, kind of chill out before going to bed. They stay in their day clothes with their swords at their side. And Nehemiah is right there with them. Do you see that? He's not ushered to safety. He's not helicoptered out, you know, like presidents in disaster films. They're taken to the underground bunker or something. Nehemiah is staying with the people. He's right there. He's got his sword with him as well. And so if Sanballat attacks the people, 
He's not going to attack the people without Nehemiah being right in the thick of it with them. And isn't that a picture of the Lord Jesus? Again, we're talking about the great and awesome God here, the one who made the cosmos. But Jesus, he, like Nehemiah, faced opposition. Well, he faces opposition like we do. He faced enemies and taunts. He faced abuse and violence, even death on a cross. Okay, so he doesn't ask his people to experience anything that he hasn't experienced himself first. But not only that, like Nehemiah in Jerusalem, the Lord Jesus is with his people now. He's with us. By his spirit, he, he dwells in and with his people. If you are a Christian, Jesus Christ is closer to you than the own, your own clothes that you're wearing right now. And so whatever opposition or difficulties we face, we do not face them alone. Imagine being one of those builders in Jerusalem. You've had a bit of a stressful week. You've had taunts coming at you. You've got this looming threat of violence and armies coming to attack. But you've got Nehemiah as your leader. You've seen his courage. You've seen that he hasn't lost his nerve. He's shown wisdom in deploying all these sort of tactics to keep the enemy at bay. And so much so that the attack that thought would happen hasn't come. The enemy's plan has been frustrated. Now, the threat isn't entirely over. We still have to sleep overnight in the city walls. You can't go home to your family yet. And you've got to sleep with a sword at your side just in case someone comes to attack. Will the enemy come? We don't know. But you do know that Nehemiah is there with you. He's alongside. He's got his sword too. And that is at least a little bit reassuring, isn't it? You will sleep that little bit more soundly that night, knowing that Nehemiah is there, that he hasn't gone off somewhere else. Well, we as Christians have an even greater reassurance. Jesus says to his disciples, those who will build his kingdom, you might remember Matthew 28, therefore go and make disciples of all nations, that is, build the kingdom. And then he goes on to say, and surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. I don't know what battles you face personally. I don't know the ones that we will face as a church. But I do know that we have a God who is with us. He's with us and fights for us. And at all times, he is there at our side, as it were, with a sword at his side, acting on behalf of of his people. You are not alone. You're not alone. Now, battles are hard. Trying to uh, build up a church is difficult. Fighting sin in our hearts is hard and long and tiring. Sharing the good news with others is hard, hard work. And you know, sometimes we try all these things, good things, and they don't work out as we want them to. Sometimes we face catastrophes. And so I don't know what challenges this church is going to face within its next, next few months and years. We may experience a season of huge blessing, or we may not. We may face struggles that none of us could have ever foreseen. But nevertheless, Jesus will not leave us if we trust in him. Indeed, he fights for us. He uses even the hardest things we face 
and uses them for, for our good and for his glory. And the ultimate outcome is secure. One day, Jesus' kingdom will be fully built. There's a wonderful passage in the Old Testament that talks about how one day, this future kingdom will be where the knowledge of God will cover the earth. His glory will cover the earth. It says, as the waters cover the sea. How much do waters cover the sea? It does totally. Of course it does. The whole earth will be full of God's glory. They will, well, it already is, but it will be recognized as such by all people at that time. God's kingdom will be built, and we will be there to enjoy it forever. Now, if that is true, is that going to help you pray when you feel discouraged? I think, I think so. I think it is. And if Jesus is with us and fights for us, is that going to help you speak to him? Is that going to help you find strength to act in the face of difficulty? Is that going to help you persevere and keep plodding like William Carey, even when things are hard? I think so. I think so. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you that though you are great and awesome, that doesn't mean that you are distant from us. But your greatness and awesomeness is close to us and you fight for us. We thank you, Father, that by your Holy Spirit, you are with us. The Lord Jesus is with us. We are never alone. Lord Jesus, thank you that you fight for us. What an amazing picture. Lord, we're so grateful. Lord, please protect this church. Protect us in light of any dangers, threats, struggles we may face. Protect us individually, Lord. We, we all face many battles. Battles against sin. Struggles in our homes and in our workplaces and our universities. Lord, whatever we struggle with this week and beyond, may we all know, Lord, those of us who who know you through Jesus, that you are with us. And may that strengthen us to keep going. In Jesus' name, amen.